Hello, and welcome to episode seven of the Jared White Show, recorded July 2018. I am, of course, your host, Jared White, coming to you from very warm and very sunny Hillsboro, Oregon, a pleasant hamlet just a few miles west of Portland. As always, I invite you to join me in a curated celebration of the art form that is the web. If you haven't already, I'd love it if you would sign up for my weekly newsletter at jaredwhite.com. You can also subscribe there to this show in your podcast player of choice, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castro, and others. Knocking down excuses. That's the subject of today's meta segment. A rather odd character named Anonymous once said, Excuses are tools of the incompetent used to build monuments to nothing for those who specialize in them shall never be good at anything else. Excuses are anything that we come up with as a valid reason not to do something. And, you know, the thing about excuses is they're almost always quite valid. You know, we can come up with excuses for why we don't do things that revolve around money, that revolve around time, that revolve around competence, And we can get quite clever at convincing ourselves that we've come up with really good, strong reasoning why these are valid excuses. Like this show, for example. I had so many excuses for why I shouldn't do this show. I need a co-host. Doing a solo podcast is just not interesting enough. It's going to suck. People aren't going to like it. Uh, Trying to do it by myself is not going to work. I need some kind of fancy name for the show. Calling it The Jared White Show is pretentious and dorky. Even though it's a show about a variety of topics, and I'm always the host of the show, and even though there are other shows out there named after the people that host the show, for some reason, if I call my show The Jared White Show, nobody's going to like that, so I shouldn't do it. I don't have a dedicated podcast studio right now. I recently moved from another state, I don't have a studio set up. I'm recording from my home, from my bedroom. Yes, folks, I am a bedroom producer. Uh, So, you know, who wants to listen to a podcast somebody recorded in their bedroom? I need a real studio before I can start recording the show. Uh, It'll take too much time every week. I'm so busy already. I'm trying to make money as a freelancer. I have a wife and kids. Uh, We like to get out on the weekends and go have fun. It's summertime now. We should be going outside all the time and doing stuff. Why am I cooped up here in a hot house without even air conditioning, recording a show every week? And on and on and on it goes. Excuses, excuses, excuses. But you know what? I finally decided to chuck all my excuses out the window. I decided to do this show anyway. And I'm so glad I did. I'm having a blast. I'm finding I spend lots of time throughout the week thinking about the show, planning the show, wondering uh, when I'll be able to squeeze in a bit of time into my schedule to record the next episode. And so do I regret starting it? Absolutely not. Sure, I'd like to have a dedicated podcast studio. Sure, I'd like to have a co-host sometimes. You know, we could interview people. uh, We could debate topics. That would be fun. Sure, I'd love to have more time in my schedules for for producing the show. You know, that would be awesome. 
it would be great to be able to monetize the show so that I can really put lots of effort into it and, you know, justify that through uh, my financial plan. There are so many things that I'd love to be able to put into this show I can't yet, but those are not valid excuses not to do the show. And I bring this all up because I think this applies to so many areas of our life. You know, there's so many different things that we could pursue that we're excited about, that we're passionate about. Um, And I believe that so many of these things never happen because we just come up with a whole list of excuses why we shouldn't do it, some of which may be quite logical, may seem quite valid. And so we don't do these things. And then time goes by and we look back and we regret the things that were the most important to us. You know, maybe some things you don't regret. And that's a good signal that it wasn't that important to you in the first place. But some things you will. So here's a rule of thumb. I've found this to be very helpful. If you get a new idea for something, you know, maybe you just go out there and register a domain name, you have an app idea, you have a website idea, maybe uh, you want to open a store and you need to figure out the funding for it and all these different things. Uh, Maybe you want to start a new business. Maybe you want to travel to a new place in the world you've never been to that's kind of challenging to get to, Uh, whatever it might be. Come up with a, with a detailed outline of what the idea is and put it on the proverbial shelf for just a little while. You know, let it stew. Let it roll around in your brain for a few days, a few weeks, maybe even a few months. And if you are still as excited about it then as you were when you first thought of it, then you got to start knocking down those excuses. you got to take the whole, the whole kit and caboodle of reasons why you can't do it and just start chucking those out the window one by one. You know, need money? Okay, go raise some. Need people to help you with the project? Go talk to some folks. Need to make time in your schedule to dedicate to the project? Clear out your schedule. You just have to start doing it. You have to start knocking down those excuses. Otherwise, it'll never happen. It'll just never happen. This show, this podcast you're listening to right now would never have happened if I had listen to all the excuses that I came up with why I shouldn't do this show. But I knocked down those excuses, and here I am doing the show, and, you know, it'll get better in the future. There are things that I want to do for the show I can't do yet, but in the meantime, I'm having a great time. I'm having a blast. I'm so excited about it. I'm glad I'm doing it. And you're the beneficiaries of that plan. That's it for today's meta segment. On to the link segment. And here we have a very exciting story, uh, new MacBook Pros from Apple. I got a chance to try out the new MacBook Pro hands-on at the Apple Store, and uh, I had a few thoughts about it. Uh, I'll go through them real quick because this isn't a full review. I tried out the keyboard, you know, it's what everyone's talking about, and uh, I think it feels much better. You know, it feels less like I'm toggling switches which was a major complaint of mine for the, the new line of the MacBook Pro keyboards as of late. Um, you know, it feels more like I'm actually pressing a key down. You know, it feels like a key is getting pushed down and coming back up rather than just toggling some kind of switch. I, I really didn't like that clacky switch kind of feeling that the keyboards had. Um, it's hard to tell in the Apple Store, of course, if the new keyboard was much quieter, um, but it seemed like it had a little bit less of that annoying edge. You know, again, this sort of clacky switch on and off kind of uh, sensation and sound that it had before. Um, it seems like that's been partially alleviated. 
So, um, so that's all good. Uh, definitely, definitely feeling a lot more confident that this latest iteration of their new keyboard is going to be uh, much better overall and, and last, hopefully, a lot longer than the previous generation had lasted. The True Tone display is awesome. So great to have it in a Mac. Uh, you know, you can check off uh, True Tone and back on in the display settings. Uh, try that several times. You'll see a huge difference. You know, when True Tone is on, the color tone of the screen matches the metal of the laptop case, the desk around it, other nearby objects. So it, it makes the display kind of just blend into your environment, whatever that might be that you're in. Uh, when you check True Tone off, it's it's night and day. It looks like you're looking at a computer monitor all of a sudden. It's really quite staggering. Um, so, you know, I've been using True Tone, of course, in the iPad Pro for quite a while now. So I'm very excited to see that start to make its way into the Mac lineup. However, uh, I was evaluating the 13-inch MacBook Pro at the Apple Store, and I was comparing that with the iPad Pro 12.9-inch that they had there as well, and I went back and forth several times between the MacBook Pros and the iPad Pros, and I feel like the iPad Pro is just a little bit better. Better contrast. It absolutely has higher resolution. I looked this up, and the iPad Pro 12.9-inch is a 2732 by 2048 resolution. That comes in at 264 pixels per inch, or PPI. So the iPad Pro, 264 PPI. Uh, the MacBook Pro is only 227 PPI, and it has a resolution of 2060 by 1600. Uh, and of course, you know these are the, the native resolutions, but they're running at a lower logical resolution because it's a retina display. So you're seeing, seeing basically you know, two times pixels. Um, that's why everything's so sharp. Uh, the other thing about the iPad, of course, is it has ProMotion. That MacBook Pro does not. Now, what is that? Uh, if you've gone to the Apple Store and tried out the latest generation of iPads, they have ProMotion, which means the screen's refreshing at about 120 hertz. So everything looks really fluid, really just popping as you're scrolling through things. You know, incredible fluid motion. On the MacBook Pros, you know, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, but it's going to feel just a little bit jittery and more like a traditional computer display. So these are subtle differences, but they're definitely there. So if display quality is important to you and you want to get the best mobile device from Apple imaginable on the display front, you know, the iPad Pro is the device for you. Um, you know, unless, of course, you have to have a Mac. The speakers seemed really loud and clear, you know, even in this extremely noisy Apple environment I was in, uh, I played a video and I could hear the speech quite clearly. So, you know, the, the promotional material from Apple, it talks about the speakers being uh, louder and, and more vibrant in sound. Uh, definitely seems like that's the case. So overall, you know, just based on my, you know, cursory examination, I definitely feel like this new generation of MacBook Pros is uh, a really decent step forward. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable recommending that anyone buy uh, a MacBook Pro previously, um, you know, if they had a fairly recent unit of the previous generation. So for example, you know, I have a 2015 13-inch MacBook Pro. So that was before, you know, the newer generations that have the USB-C and the uh, butterfly switch keyboards with the thinner profile. Uh, and all of that. So, um, you know, I, I did not feel confident recommending that people that have, you know, somewhat recent laptops uh, get one of the new MacBook Pros. 
But with this latest iteration, with the keyboard being improved, with the really impressive performance gains from the new Coffee Lake chips, uh, of course, the True Tone displays, I feel comfortable recommending that people buy this. You know, if I had the funds, I would buy a new one today. Uh, so, so there you go. Um, quick aside, I hadn't really gotten a chance to listen to the HomePod before, so I also got um, some time to play with that at the Apple Store. You know, of course, it's a noisy environment. You can't really tell a whole lot, but I played some music I'm very familiar with, my own music, <laughs> and I was impressed by the sound quality for sure. You know, I could hear the, the higher registers, the, the timbre and the, you know, the treble of various instruments really well. Uh, obviously, the bass was solid. You know, you're, you're going to get that. You'd expect that from Apple's uh, Beats heritage. This was a, uh, just a mo- mono unit, of course. You know, they, they just recently introduced stereo pairing of HomePods. So, I'd, you know, I'd love to hear that in action at some point. But given the fact this is just a little fabric thing that just sits there that's not very large, um, I was quite impressed by the sound quality. So, uh, you know, hopefully down the road, I'll be able to pick up one or two of these babies and, and really put it through its paces. So that's it for my quick uh, review of sorts, but the the link I wanted to share with you is uh, over at appleinsider.com, and they reference iFixit's teardown of the new MacBook Pros. Um, So there's a link to both uh, the Apple Insider overview as well as all the detailed information and video from iFixit. Um, But essentially, it seems like uh, one of the reasons the keyboards are quieter and less clacky sounding uh, is because there's these little silicone membranes that have been added underneath each key, um, kind of between the, the key cap and the switch mechanism. And so not only does that change the sound and also the feel of the keys, Um, But it's very likely to protect against um, dust and other little uh, foreign elements from getting in there. And that's been part of the reliability issue that the MacBook Pros have had for the last couple years. Uh, So Apple hasn't really talked about this. In fact, they've kind of gone on record saying that, you know, they're not guaranteeing that the new keyboards are far more reliable. Um, But, you know, there may be legal reasons why they have to sort of act like not much has changed. But from the looks of it, it seems like the design has been updated, and it's been updated in such a way that not only will protect the, the keys underneath from getting dust in and causing problems, but it also makes it quieter. It also gives it a slightly different feel. So, you know, I feel like the, these very real design changes that Apple has made that are even detailed in a patent that uh, iFixit was able to find back from back in March, um, seems like this is a you know, big improvement, a, a really decent step forward. So I'm excited. I feel like, you know, after some some missteps and some stumbles, uh, Apple's laptop story is is back on track. You know, my 2015 13-inch MacBook Pro is just a workhorse. I mean, that thing just keeps trucking along. It's an awesome little machine. I've gotten so much work done on it. I've, you know, I make money. I get work done on it. And it's served me well. And uh, I've been kind of uh, upset about the thought that, you know, I might not be confident that getting a, a new MacBook Pro, um, you know, whether this year or the next, uh, you know, would be uh, would be a good idea if I'd be happy with the m- new machine I got. Um, but now I'm much more confident. So, uh, you know, for me, it's just a matter of funds at this point. Uh, and honestly, if I did have a, a good chunk of change burning a hole in my pocket right now, uh, I'd actually get a new iPad Pro 12.9 inch. Uh, those machines are fabulous. I'm really looking forward to the refresh that's hopefully coming in the next month or two or possibly at the fall iPhone event. 
Um, so, you know, I'm really looking forward to whatever that refreshed iPad is, and uh, I'm definitely going to be saving up for that. Uh, so uh, stay tuned. Oh, yes, before I f- go on to the next link, uh, The Verge actually has a recording of the keys on the new MacBook Pros. And, um, and so you can hear in action the keys that are, uh, you know, you can hear them being a little quieter than on the previous model. So uh, check out that link as well. Uh, of course, all these links are in the show notes, and you can go to jaredwhite.com slash podcast slash seven if you need to to get those links. And on to the next one, we have here a story about YouTube. They have a plan to um, start to, to boost certain channels in such a way as to, as to indicate and feature them as being authoritative, quote-unquote, authoritative news sources. And they even have a plan in the works to give grants to certain news video operations. Um, so I'm not going to talk too much about this particular announcement and about YouTube in particular. Uh, I feel like this is part of a much larger story. Whether you talk about YouTube, whether you talk about Apple News, whether you talk about Facebook and others, uh, a lot of large companies that have substantial influence and control over people's attention and eyeballs uh, seem to be moving in a direction where, uh, far from the wild west of the early web, they're essentially blessing you know, featured news outlets that are generally quite well-established and, you know, essentially brand names that most people are familiar with. You know, we can all rattle off a list of names, at least here in the U.S., you know, sources like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, uh, the Economist, maybe, um, the Guardian in the U.K., although they have a substantial uh, U.S. edition as well. Um, you know, all, all of these well-established newspapers and magazines and uh, trusted news sources, you know, CNN, uh, throw Fox News in there just because, you know, at least that'll keep the conservatives happy, right? Um, I have a real problem with this. I'm very concerned. And listen, I, I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy, I admit it, but I'm going to be publicly critical of Apple right now when it comes to the Apple News initiative, because I feel like, you know, if, if Apple is going to assemble an editorial team and if they're going to bless news sources from just a small handful of, of you know, established newspapers and television channels, this is moving backwards, folks. We are moving backwards from the open web, from the idea that anyone can start a blog, anyone can start a news publication, anyone can be a valid source, potentially. You know, anyone can contribute to the dialogue and debate of the day. People can can espouse alternative viewpoints. Now, listen, listen. Alternative viewpoints in the news has gotten a, a bad rap of late, and I, f- I fully acknowledge the problems here. You know, I am as anti-Nazi, as anti-alt-right as anybody you're going to find. I'm, I'm not tooting that horn whatsoever. But if you start shutting down the alternative viewpoints that you don't like you will find that your alternative viewpoint at some point in the future will be the one that gets shut down. This is just, a, this is a fundamental principle of free speech. You know, as soon as you start limiting others' speech, you cannot be shocked when your own speech becomes limited in the future. It's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's one of these zero-sum games, you know, mutual assured destruction kind of situations. 
And so that's why it's so important to, to campaign for free speech, to protect free speech, you know, to encourage policies that protect free speech, whether it's that's in the part of, you know, academic institutions, um, if that's on the part of, of uh, you know, publications that try to disseminate information neutrally. Uh, now, listen, I don't have a problem with, you know, a Facebook or a Google or a whoever adding annotations. You know, if they want to add annotations to content and say, you know, the validity of this content is in question and here's some, you know, resources to check up on, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Um, but if you if you start playing around with algorithms to sort of suppress anybody that's not considered quote-unquote authoritative, uh, if you take content off, off a site completely because, uh, you know, you might not agree with that as, as the platform owner or it's too controversial, uh, you know, if, if you start just sh- shutting down anyone's opinion, uh, no, you know, no matter, you know, how valid that particular opinion might be simply because of guilt by association, like, oh, well, this person writes for this site and this site has also published something by this other person who also knows this other person and they have this other site and that's where all the Nazis are. Therefore, you know, we got to shut this whole thing down. Like that kind of stuff makes me really nervous. It, it really, really strikes me the wrong way. Um, so, you know, by all means, get rid of fake accounts, get rid of bots, get rid of junk, get rid of trolls that, you know, routinely violate policies. You know, I'm not advocating that it's okay to, to engage in, you know, name calling or name assassination or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but just talking about, you know, news or opinion that's written in a way that's, you know, respectful of others that's intended to provoke thought and a, a dialogue and exchange of ideas. You know, we, we need to protect that kind of, you know, civilized debate on issues from all viewpoints, from all sides, from different political parties. Uh, and, you know, it makes me really nervous when I see large platforms like YouTube or Facebook or Apple News, um, you know, bow to public pressure because of legitimate issues by just saying, okay, well, we're just going to start picking winners and losers. We're going to start saying which sources are authoritative and which aren't. Uh, you know, we're going to surface content that we think is good content and, and not surface content that we don't think is good content. Uh, you know, we're on behalf of you, the audience, we will now start making choices about all these different issues. Um, that is a real problem. That is very concerning. And so I think we need to, we need to think long and hard in our, in our quest to, you know, combat the trolls and the Nazis and the whatever you know, we need to think long and hard about the, the tactics that we should approve of in, in that fight for truth. On another note, a lighter note, I came across a website that I really appreciated that's called Brutalist Web Design. Uh, and it sort of uh, takes a cue from the brutalist movement in architecture. Now, a common misnomer is the thinking that brutalist here means, you know, like brutal or brute-like. Um, because, you know, if you look at some of the buildings, they, uh, you know, it, it's generally these, you know, somewhat featureless, uh, often concrete kind of, uh, you know, buildings that we're all familiar with from back in the, in the 60s and 70s into the early 80s. You find quite a few of buildings in this style, like, say, uh, in, the, in the former Soviet empire. Um, but there's plenty of examples here in America as well. Um, so, you know, brutalism in architecture, it's, it's debatable if that 
movement was uh, quote-unquote good or not. Uh, some people like that style of architecture, others really don't. But in, in this context, in web design, the idea is that uh, the, the brutalism here, and, and that actually comes from a French term that literally means raw concrete. So the brutalist architecture was, was all about the use of of uh, you know concrete in particular, but the idea that you know you're building a building that is completely unadorned and doesn't you know add a lot of additional materials or excess of design based you know beyond its actual raw material that's needed to build the building. And so for web design, the idea here is let's not add a bunch of stuff to a website that's extra from what's actually needed to to have the website come up on your screen and function in its most basic sense. You know, the, the, the tagline here is raw content true to its construction. And so there's a few points here about how content should be readable on all reasonable screens and devices. Only hyperlinks and buttons should respond to clicks. Hyperlinks are underlined. Buttons look like buttons. The back button in the browser works as expected. Uh, you view content by scrolling, you know, not some other sort of strange me- mechanism of navigation that's sort of foreign to typical websites. Uh, decoration when needed, no unrelated content. Performance is a feature. So, uh, you know, I think I think there's a lot to be commended in this brutalist web design movement. Um, you know, the idea that we need to get away from having these, you know, hyper complicated sites with all these extra things added to them, uh, you know, a lot of which is all around the serving up of ads, uh, trackers, things that pop up, things that get in the way, see also stuff that takes you off to sites that are completely unrelated to what you're looking at. Basically, you know, a website should be you know, as simple as possible, like hardly more than just some text on a page that says exactly what it needs to say. So I feel like, obviously, uh, as a web designer, you know, I like visuals. I like visual design. I do like ornamentation. I do like, you know, things to be uh, eye-catching and interactive and dynamic. Um, So I'm not necessarily going to jump on the brutalist web design bandwagon for my own work. Um, but I appreciate it, and I appreciate the sentiment here. And I do think that, generally speaking, the web design community um, should think long and hard about you know what kind of design it's promoting. And I'm particularly concerned about websites. Now, I'm not talking necessarily about specific applications on the web, but just websites in general. I'm very perturbed by the fact that oh, so many of them now are essentially being built with this technology called React, where the actual web page that gets downloaded to your browser initially actually has virtually no content or nothing substantial in it whatsoever. And everything gets assembled through JavaScript and through React components and, and you know, the whole React framework. Um, I'm really against that. I'm definitely in favor of web pages where, you know, if you download the web page into your browser and you go to view source, you can see you know, relatively basic HTML and style sheets and maybe a little bit of JavaScript sprinkled along the top. uh, And that's what makes up the website. You know, I just went to Wired the other day, Wired Magazine's website, and nothing happened. It was blank. Uh, It didn't work. Wired.com was not working. And I was like, what the heck's going on? And I, uh, I looked into it a little bit, and it turned out that there was some kind of strange JavaScript error 
And so nothing rendered on the page because of a JavaScript error. And I went, when I went to view source, I found out, oh, it's because wired.com is a React application. Why do they need to build a React application for a site that's just content? It's just, it's just articles. I'm just coming here to wired.com to read an article. Why does it have to load up the entire React framework and try to assemble all this content client side? And if there's an error, I'm not even seeing anything. I just have a blank page of nothing in my web browser. It, it just kind of blew me away and was really, uh, really kind of disturbing from, you know, as somebody who's worked on the web as a web designer for 22 years. This is wrong. This is not the right way to build a website. So, uh, you know, I think the brutalist web design movement, while I can't fully support all of its tenants, generally, I think that, that it's uh, taking things and trying to get things to trend in, in the right direction. So definitely worth a read if you're interested in web design topics. And last but not least, for today's image segment, I'd like to highlight a podcast that I've been listening to for several years now and highly enjoy. It's called Clockwise, and it's from the Relay FM network. It's a great tech podcast if you're not super into tech, you know, if you don't listen to a lot of tech podcasts generally, but, you know, you kind of want to dip your toe into the water of uh, punditry and nerd navel gazing on issues of technology. Uh, I think Clockwise is just awesome. It's four people, four tech topics, 30 minutes. Uh, yes, every episode is exactly 30 minutes, and it's actually one of the inspirations for this show. I try to keep it right around 30 minutes. Uh, it used to be hosted by Jason Snell and Dan Morin, but now it's uh, Dan Morin along with Micah Sargent. Uh, and, and Micah's been doing a great job as the new co-host, and uh, so I just keep on listening. So every every week they have the, the four people, you know, the two hosts and the two guests, all bring in a single topic. So they'll, they'll talk for roughly 15 minutes about a topic, then they'll go on to the next topic, then there's a little break, and then they have, you know, the third topic, the fourth topic. Uh, and there's always a little bonus segment right at the end, which I won't spoil anything, but it's always a lot of fun. Uh, so if you want to get a little bit more into tech, a little bit more into current affairs and news and information about what's happening with computers and Apple stuff and the web and uh, you know, gaming and TV, streaming services, all those sorts of things, uh, Clockwise podcast is awesome. Uh, FM slash Clockwise uh, gets you to the show's homepage. And that's it for today's image segment. And that's it for today's show. So thanks for tuning in, everybody. This has been the Jared White Show, and I will see you next time. Bye.